You're listening to Once Upon a Time, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, we take a fresh look at some of the most familiar stories of Jesus in hopes of being changed from the inside out. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. called Once Upon a Time, and I want to jump into that uh, if we could. And so I just want to start this morning by asking you what I believe is a profoundly important question. And it's going to sound like a question I'm certain that you've heard before, but I want you to do your best to sit with it in a fresh way. It is a question to which it is so crucial that you have a clear answer. Here's the question. You ready? Who are you? So simple, I know, but I want you to just sit with a minute for a minute with that question, who are you? See, that question invites us to contemplate our identity. And, and so often in answer to this question of identity, we often rush to our various roles in life in order to answer it. And so I'll use myself as an example. When I think about who am I, well, I'm a husband and I'm a dad, I'm a friend, I get to be a pastor, I'm a teacher, I'm a writer. I'm a Taylor Swift fan. All of those things, all of those things are deeply true of me. But the question is, are any one of those things really who I am? And the reality is, in a sense, all of them are. But when you really think about the core, the true essence, or the very heart of your identity, the truth is, none of those roles really capture who we are. So, who are you? Well, rather than grasp in the dark to answer that question, I want you to listen to what the Apostle John would say. Now, if you don't know, John had a very uniquely intimate relationship with Jesus. Over and over again in the Gospels, he's referred to as the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love all of the disciples, but there was something very unique about his relationship with John. And in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, John writes this. He says, See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. Dear friends, we are God's children. If you hear nothing else today, please hear this. The deepest, truest, and most important thing about you is this. You are a beloved child of God. That is the most important thing that you can ever allow to soak into your heart. You're not a child that God tolerates. You're not a, a child that God just puts up with. You're not a child that God is chronically irritated with, even though we are all irritating. You are a beloved child of God. Scripture says God delights in you. Just think about the reality of that for a second, that God when he looks at you, he delights in you. I think about myself sometimes, I'm just like, ugh, hate me. <laughs> I just don't like me. I don't like the way that I function, the way that I think, the way that I respond. I know I'm not the only one. So much of the time, we feel so much disdain toward us, and then oftentimes what we do is project that disdain onto God as though that's the way he sees us, and it's wrong. He delights in you. Now, here's why I think it's so important for us to start here this morning. We are trying very hard this year, in this series in particular, to take seriously the words of Jesus. 
Now, when you take seriously the words of Jesus, what you find is that over and over and over again, he calls us to very specific and oftentimes very challenging action. Like he calls us to do stuff. And as Protestant Christians, that's the stream of Christianity that we live in, we are rightfully allergic to works-based righteousness. And what that means is we stand on the teaching of Jesus, we stand on the teaching of the New Testament writers, and we firmly reject the notion that we have to do good works in order to earn the love and acceptance of God. Nowhere does Scripture teach that. Nowhere has Jesus ever said that. So we are allergic to works-based righteousness. But because of this, we can often become very prone to either soften or to shy away from the very practical things Jesus calls us to actually do. Jesus telling us to do stuff is not works-based righteousness. Doing stuff so that God will love you is works-based righteousness. So we have to be so careful to live in this middle place where we don't reject all calls to action, but we also don't ever do anything in order to earn the love and acceptance of God. Anytime Jesus calls us to do something, he's only asking us to be who we are. He's not asking you to be something contrary to your nature, contrary to your identity. You're a child of God. He's asking you to be who you are. So in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. And so when Jesus says do, which we're going to see him say do some stuff this morning again, when Jesus says do, all he's saying is, this is what a child of God does. So step in to who you truly are. And so this morning, we're going to look at a story that Jesus uses to put another difficult invitation before us. But the invitation isn't to be something that we're not. I really want that to be clear in our heads. The invitation is to be who we are truly as beloved children of God. And so we're going to spend our time this morning in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, and we're going to look at the story of the good neighbor. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and now just for the sake of context, here's where, where we're dropping it. At this point in Jesus' ministry, his the number of true disciples that are following him has begun to grow. And with this growth has come an increase of both interest and opposition from the religious institutions that Jesus' teaching was beginning to disrupt. And so all of these religious leaders are beginning to come to Jesus, and they are bringing questions to him. And some of those questions are driven by genuine curiosity, even the beginnings of faith. But others were coming, and they're trying to trap him in a way that would discredit him and his ministry and the following that he was gaining. And this story that we're going to look at today is set in motion by the latter. So look with me at Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Luke writes this, he says, Then an expert in the law, so a lawyer, stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You answer correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So, this lawyer comes to Jesus for the expressed purpose of testing him, most likely in a way that would result in Jesus saying something that would somehow incriminate him in regard to the Jewish law. So, in the famed words of Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. 
okay? <laughs> Star Wars, episode four, you're welcome. Okay, regardless, Jesus handles this with immense grace and responds with what Tim Keller once called a reverse trap. See, this lawyer asks what he has to do to inherit eternal life. Now understand, that saying is synonymous in the Jewish mind with the kingdom of God. So this lawyer comes to him and he says, Rabbi, what do I need to do to be ready for the kingdom of God? And Jesus answers his question with a question. He says, how do you, how do you read what the Torah says? And the lawyer, like Jesus many other times, answers by quoting two places in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18 and Deuteronomy 6.5. These, these verses were a very popular way for rabbis and religious leaders to summarize the teaching of the law. Love God, love people. And so Jesus affirms his answer, and he says, do this and you will live. But this lawyer clearly knew enough about Jesus to sense there's something subversive beneath this affirmation. See, to the average Jew, a neighbor was another Jewish person. And so as Jesus affirms his answer, it's like you can almost see the wheels in his head start to turn. Like maybe he's thinking, All right, I've, seen, I've seen who this Jesus hangs out with. He welcomes the unclean. He doesn't seem to discriminate who he loves. He'll hang out with literally anybody. And so as you can imagine, this would have made this lawyer very uncomfortable in the same way that it makes us uncomfortable to hear Jesus say that we are called to love those who fall outside of our comfort zone. And so in an attempt to justify his feelings, he asks, okay, well, who exactly is my neighbor? He's asking Jesus, who am I obligated to love? To which Jesus responds, once upon a time, there was a man going down to Jericho. Look at verse 30. Jesus answered the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. Now, this journey that's being described here in verse 30, it was a well-known one to their listeners, to Jesus' listeners. That road is it's a 17-mile journey, and it is not an easy one. There's an elevation change of roughly 2,000 feet, so it's hilly, and it's filled with places for thieves to hide. So they were like pirates that hung out along this path and did exactly what we see described here. It was notoriously treacherous. It was notoriously dangerous. And so this presumably Jewish man is making this journey. He's jumped, he's robbed, he's stripped naked, and he is beaten and left for dead. And so at this point in the story, Jesus' listeners, I'm sure, just like we do, would have felt an immense amount of empathy for the man, but they wouldn't have been super surprised because this is the kind of crime that happened along this road all of the time. But what happened next absolutely would have surprised them. Look at verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, another religious leader, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Pretty gross. Just as a general observation, it's pretty gross to do this. But Jesus pictures these two religious leaders that one would expect to drop everything to help this man in need. Like if we can't trust our spiritual leaders to lean in the direction of people who are hurting, then what is the point of having spiritual leaders? But rather than help him, they literally go out of their way to avoid him. There's no confusion about, like, they didn't know, like, the text is, Jesus is real specific in this story. No, they saw him, and they literally crossed the road to go the other way. 
Now, in studying this week, I noticed that there's some scholars that have attempted to give these men the benefit of the doubt, which I find just an interesting decision. And so the, the, the logic is like, well, maybe they were concerned, because they were, they were religious leaders, and so maybe they were concerned about becoming ceremonially unclean and thus forfeiting their ability to serve in the temple. And they base this line of thought on the fact that rabbinic texts did instruct that a person had to keep at least six feet away from a corpse so as not to defile themselves. It also has the added benefit it helps you from not getting COVID. So that's nice. Six feet has been going around for a long time. Now, here's the problem with that line of thought. Jewish people in general, but definitely spiritual leaders in particular, they were required on religious grounds to bury a corpse and to help someone in need. So there was nothing standing in these guys' way of saving this poor man's life. So the safest assumption for us is that they were simply indifferent to someone that they should have helped. And Jesus intends their example to be an image of an overt failure to love one who is obviously a neighbor. Now, if this failure alone didn't shock the people, the hero of Jesus' story certainly did. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, which at this point there would have been like audible gasps around Jesus, a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, which is like a great meal, but a weird way to help someone. Then he put on his own animal, put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Now, I'm not sure it's possible for us in our culture to fully conceive of the deep animosity that was shared between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. But trust me when I say there was certainly some in the crowd listening to this story who literally would have rather died than be helped by a Samaritan in the way that Jesus is describing. Now, if you don't know the background of this, the Samaritans were the descendants of the people that the Assyrians brought back to to Jerusalem to help colonize the Jews during their exile. And so the Jewish people saw them as this constant reminder of the most painful point in their history. They also had deep theological disagreements. The Samaritans were also monotheistic, but the Samaritans only acknowledged the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And at the center of their religious disagreement stood the temple. The Samaritans rejected the temple in Jerusalem and instead worshipped in their own on Mount Gerizim. And this mutual disdain that they shared for one another, it on the regular turned to violence. For instance, the Samaritans desecrated the Jewish temple in 9 AD by scattering bones inside of it during the Passover. That's a harsh burn. Some Jewish people responded by destroying the foundation of part of a Samaritan city so that it literally fell into the neighboring river. I didn't even know that was possible. The Samaritans murdered Jewish pilgrims traveling through their territory headed for Jerusalem in 50 AD. And in response, Jewish vigilantes burned and sacked Samaritan villages. It was pure, chaotic conflict. They hated one another. And so when Jesus is sitting with them, telling this story and says, a priest and a Levite callously passed by this poor man, but a Samaritan saw him and felt compassion. It was arguably the most scandalous turn that this story could have possibly taken. 
Furthermore, the Samaritan felt a compassion that resulted in sacrificial care. He provides medical attention, emergency transportation, and then he pays what would have provided for two weeks room and board at this inn for this man to be able to, to, to heal and recover. And so Jesus then concludes his story with a very convicting question. Look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. And so here's, here's how I'd summarize the big idea of Jesus' story here, okay? In Christ, I am invited to show indiscriminate mercy. In Christ, I am invited to show indiscriminate mercy. Now, let's break this down a little bit. First, remember, <clears throat> this is a picture of kingdom behavior, meaning this is behavior, Jesus says, is indicative of a child of God under the reign of God in the kingdom of God. And so, these types of good works are not how someone becomes a child of God. This is behavior embodied by a child of God. This is what Christians do with their new nature. Now, second, through this story, we're invited by Jesus to be a people of mercy. Notice how the story teaches us about mercy. Mercy is not a feeling. Mercy is not a feeling. Compassion is a feeling. Compassion is the heartbreak we feel like the Samaritan when we see another person who is in need. But mercy is the action that's taken to meet the need. So when we read about mercy in the Bible, mercy is compassion in action. And then finally, I want you to notice that the entire point of Jesus' story is that mercy is meant to be indiscriminate. Meaning, when we see a person in need, the gender, the sexual orientation, the ethnicity, the religious conviction, their political affiliation, it does not matter. It doesn't matter because it's a human. It's another person created in the image of God that matters so much more than all of those secondary things. Where there's a need, mercy meets it. There's a woman named Michelle Lee Barnwall who wrote a great book I'm reading on the parables and she points out how the very question from the lawyer assumes that there is a non-neighbor. That there is someone to whom we need not extend compassion and mercy. So just think about how gross, how subhuman, and how common that belief is in all of us. See, the truth is, oftentimes we resist showing the mercy necessary to meet the needs around us. And so this week, the question that came to my mind was, why do we do that? Why do we resist the opportunity to be a people of mercy? Well, I can think of at least three reasons. The first one is due to preoccupation with self. We're just really focused on ourselves. And the reality is, mercy is never convenient. Mercy is almost never comfortable. In fact, I would argue that mercy is inherently disruptive. As we see in the story, it often requires us to go out of our way. It derails our timetable. It derails our plans. Mercy means sacrifice. Mercy means getting dirty. And so in short, you can't be a person of mercy while also being preoccupied with self. You know why? Because 
Mercy is an act of love, and true love is allergic to self. And so in Christ, we are invited to show indiscriminate mercy, but we resist being the merciful people we truly are when we elevate self over sacrifice. Now, a second reason that we resist mercy is because of the prevalence of fear. The prevalence of fear. Some acts of mercy, many acts of mercy, maybe even most, are kind of scary. Probably it's just a matter of degree. Sometimes maybe we can fear something uh, that's emotional in nature. So maybe I see a person that I perceive to be in emotional need, but I'm afraid that if I engage, maybe I'll get it wrong. Maybe I'll say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Then I'm going to be embarrassed. Or, or maybe this person's going to reject my attempt to help, and that's going to hurt. So there's fear there. Sometimes the fear can center around the financial cost of mercy. For the Samaritan, mercy meant a financial investment, and sometimes ours will too. And it's scary to part with money, always. Sometimes the fear is physical in nature. Homelessness, for instance, is a massive problem in our city. And that population can be very scary to work with. Like I, I ran home from the MC just a couple of weeks ago to pick Ryder up in the morning because he needed to be here early to play drums. And as I drove under I-15, there was this homeless man clearly out of his mind and in another universe underneath the overpass, just screaming up into the air, screaming at cars as they went by. Fifteen minutes later, as we were coming back, same guy, same place, same thing going on. And we're lying if we're not willing to admit that it's overwhelming and scary to think about how to show mercy to a population that could mean physical danger. It's okay to acknowledge that, by the way. It's scary. And, but in Christ, we're invited to show indiscriminate mercy, and we resist being the merciful people that we truly are when we elevate fear over love. Now, a third reason that we resist mercy is the presence of both conscious and unconscious bias. So we are just deluding ourselves if we don't believe that there are simply some people that we are ready to show mercy to and others that we're just more reluctant about. Maybe we think that for some reason they don't deserve help. Maybe we think, like this is very common uh, when it comes to trying to show mercy to people who suffer from addiction. Maybe we think their suffering is the result of their own doing. Maybe we think that something they believe or some way in which they behave is deplorable, maybe even objectively is deplorable. The reasons for bias are infinite, and some of them are very, very understandable. But here's the problem. True mercy is blind to bias, blind to it. And so that means a few things for us. One, we need to admit conscious bias in our hearts to God. We need to tell God, like, this, this is where I'm at, because he knows we're not informing him. He's not going to be like, what? He's going to be like, I know, I'm glad we're finally talking about this. It's been kind of awkward. So we need to admit, acknowledge the bias that's inside of us so that the Spirit of God can work in our hearts and change our hearts and move us to a place of compassion rather than judgment. So we need to acknowledge this conscious bias. Secondly, we need to pray for an awareness around unconscious bias. There's bias that we hold that we're not even aware of, that we don't even understand what it is. We don't understand the way that prejudice is expressed toward other people in our lives that we are prejudiced toward. We just don't call it that or think of it that way. 
We need to pray that God would help us. We need to listen to the people around us. Like even there, there's a possibility that even you hearing the phrase unconscious bias, some of you are like, nope, I hear about this on the news. I'm not into this. Like, calm down. It's a real thing. Just because the person on the other side of the aisle that you don't agree with uses the term doesn't mean the term is not real. We have to learn to listen, even to people that we think are out of their mind. We need to listen so that we can become aware of this. And then finally, we act against those biases as we beg God to change our hearts. So maybe there is someone in your life that is in need. You're like, I do not want to help this person. You should probably help that person. That's probably like the whole takeaway for the message today for you. Go help that person as soon as you possibly can. In Christ, we are invited to show indiscriminate mercy, but we resist that mercy, the mercy that is present in us because of who we truly are as children of God. We, we resist that when we elevate bias over service. So let me just wrap this up and bring this all to a close. Think again about mercy. If mercy is about putting compassion in action, then all mercy really is primarily is about meeting needs. Mercy is about meeting needs. To be a people of mercy means being increasingly aware of the needs that are around us. Those needs can be physical, they can be emotional, they can be spiritual or financial or relational. And God is inviting us to be a people who mercifully meet the needs of those around us. And so to close our time together today, I want to invite you to reflect and to pray on this invitation through two separate lenses. I want you to reflect on this personally, and then I want you to reflect on how this applies to us as a community. So start with you personally. What opportunities could God be placing in your life to mercifully meet the needs of those around you? Just you as an individual, you personally. What opportunities could God be placing in your life to mercifully meet the needs of those around you? Could it be your family? Could it be a literal neighbor, someone that lives next door to you? Could it be someone at work, someone at school? It could be a stranger that you're going to come across. Opportunities for mercy can be something as simple as someone that's in need of more kindness. Someone that's in need of a little bit of understanding. Someone that's in need of a little bit of empathy from you. Maybe there's someone or will be someone in your life that needs a little bit of your time. That's one of our most precious commodities that we could sacrifice. Maybe it's attention. Think about how rare it is that we have one another's full attention because we're so distracted by whatever's happening inside of us or by the screen that's in front of us. Maybe you're aware of a, of a physical need with which you can help. Maybe there's someone around you that needs a friend. Mercy can mean befriending someone. So when you think about you personally, what opportunities could God be placing in your life to mercifully meet the needs of those around you? And finally, I want you to think about us as a community. What opportunities could God be placing in our life to show mercy as a community. Now, I, I want to share something about this as an act of disclosure because for years, 
as a pastor, I've been asked this one question over and over and over again, particularly when people come to any of the churches that I've pastored for like the first time. And that question is, is, always, is always this, how, how does your church serve in the community? I get that question all the time. And to be honest, that question has always been a source of immense stress and guilt for me personally. Because a majority of my attention is spent on caring for our church. Like for the people who are here, who make up this community. And so as a result of that, I've, I've never been very strong at cultivating a culture of mercy ministry. And so here's what I decided this week. Um, I'm done carrying the weight of that responsibility alone. And I don't know why I picked it up to carry it alone. I don't, I don't know if someone told me that, but I just, I'm done carrying that alone because I'm not good at it. And so here's what I want to do. On Sunday, March 5th, at 1 p.m., so you can go grab some lunch and come back, Sunday, March 5th, I'm going to host a discussion right here after church with anyone that wants to come and to think about how we can build a culture of mercy ministry together. So maybe there's some need that you're aware of or a passion that you have. Maybe there's a subset of people that you feel immense compassion for and you're aware of a way in which there might be needs that we could meet as a community. Let's just start to talk about that together and figure out how we can grow that culture together. I'm admitting I'm not good at it, so hopefully one of you is. But I am quite confident if we all come together and we talk about the needs that are in front of us and then prayerfully discern whether or not it's within our capacity to meet those needs, that God's going to give us opportunities. Because this is what he wants, because this is who we are. As children of God, we are people of mercy. In Christ, we are invited to show indiscriminate mercy. So let's die to self. Let's continue to face fear. And let's act against our bias. Prayerfully, look for opportunities, both personally and as a community, to mercifully meet the needs of those around us. Will you close your eyes and let me pray over us to close? Jesus, we, we just want you to help us more and more be who you truly are. Lord, in you we are new creations. The old is gone. That old nature but sometimes we still fall back on it because it's what we know, because it's more comfortable, because we feel like we have more control there. So Lord, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us live up and into who we truly are. And I pray that one of the great evidences of that would be that more and more we would be a merciful people looking for opportunities to meet the needs of those around us. And so much of it starts with our hearts breaking for what breaks yours. Lord, the Gospels tell us over and over again that when you looked on these crowds of hurting people that you felt compassion. Would you please give us that heart? Help us to see people for who and what they truly are. Fellow image bearers, fellow icons of God. And if they are in need, then we are called to help. And as we try to prayerfully discern how we can be and build a culture of mercy ministry as a church, Lord, guide us in that. 
Because it is scary, it is hard, it is confusing and overwhelming to know where to even start. But you know, so we just ask that you would guide us. We thank you, Jesus, that you are a merciful God. Would you make us a more and more merciful people? Pray this in Jesus' name. I want to invite you to just